Let's get into some word. What do you say? Yeah. Let's do this. I began speaking to you uh, last week a series that I uh, didn't tell you I titled this, but I titled it How to Walk with God. All right? How to Walk with God. If you missed part one, uh, this will be building upon that. And so you could get it if you are new here. Uh, two of the most important experiences for all of us to have, for every single one of us, I would say are these. Number one is our legal relationship with God. And then number two is our daily walk and interaction with God. All right. The first being, of course, salvation. I mean, no, that's a legal transaction. Yeah, God loves us, but you still have to, you know, put the coin in and turn the lever, so to speak. In other words, I don't mean to sound overly mechanical, but receiving salvation is an experience that uh, not everybody has had. Not everybody who goes to church is saved. Not everybody who prays is saved. I mean, no, the Lord gave us the, the, the methodology, and that is believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you'll confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved, right? You have to do that. That's first, that's foremost. Uh, if you've come to church today and you've never done that, we're going to be praying with folks at the end of the service and, and maybe that will be you today. And then you'll have your experience. That's first, that's foremost, that's most important. But then secondly, it is about walking with God. It's about daily interaction. It's about that fellowship with the Lord. It's entirely possible for someone to genuinely and literally be saved, but then stop right there at the door. It's like you went into the house, closed the door behind you, you're in the house, but you never leave that spot. You never explore, you never go into another room, you never take advantage of all that house has to offer. Okay, it's possible to do that with the Lord. You're saved, but you don't hardly know much about him. All right. You don't have daily interaction with him. And so you're kind of missing what was intended. And we want to avoid that. Okay, we want to experience the fullness of God, not just in salvation and not just when we leave this life and are in heaven. Uh, We want to experience God the way he intended this to be while we're here on the earth. Amen. Now, one of our challenges is generations of Christians who have neglected their connection with God. Maybe through ignorance, maybe through, you know, just out of, get, becoming out of habit. But many of us who have come to know the Lord do not have a history of role models that, of people who walk with God. Even if they were saved, they kind of stopped at the door. And so we think that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it looks like. And unfortunately, it lacks a lot of the internal components that are supposed to exist. After I was uh, teaching last week from Genesis chapter 1 and God's original intent to make us in his likeness and image and so forth, uh, Amy brought up to me how, how that's the reason why I don't speak Dutch. Because you go back a couple generations in my family, they all came from there, and everyone spoke, spoke that language, and then English as well, of course, at least when they came here. And uh, I could be bilingual. <laughs> I could speak two languages fr- fluently and frequently. <laughs> but I don't. Do you know why I don't? 
Because my grandparents stopped speaking it. They could, and they quit. And so my parents don't know it. And I know less than they do. <laughs> yeah? And that same principle, just like it removed that language from our family through neglect of use, uh, that happens in God. When people who know something stop using it. They stop walking in the fullness of it. Or they start doing it less. Then what happens is their kids, they don't know much about it. Or those that know them, those they lead to the Lord, they get a skewed picture of what the fullness of it could be. Yeah. 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 And, and, and so uh, then later on, I mean, that's that same principle works in church. How many parents know this, that if you are, if you have, well, if you're not a parent if you don't have kids. I was going to say if you have kids. Huh. Uh, but if, if parents do not make church priority, how many know their kids are going to grow up and it's going to be less important to them? Yeah their kids are going to blow it off altogether, right? right? And they're not going to, they're going to be like heathens, okay? So that's why we see how this happens, and it's happened to many of us uh, in what we view or picture as a real relationship with God. People have elevated uh, tradition, they've elevated religious practice over the experience, over the tangible relationship, and this is something, because we're talking about it and because we have this cool book, we can get this back. We can revive it, if you will. We can reignite, even if it's never personally existed for you. You've been standing in the entry of your relationship with God for decades. Uh, this can still happen in you and in me because God's the same. And He still wants what He's always wanted. And, and we can enter into this by giving it some attention by asking him, by, uh, uh, by yielding to him when he shows us various things. And so uh, many people have stripped out the power of God uh, from this whole experience by elevating their tradition over it. In other words, we make our ways superior to God's ways. I mean, when I do things my way instead of God's way, I become God to me. I become my own God. I'm an, it's like I made him in my image instead of him make me in his image. And so we're always looking to do things His way. I'll remind you of Mark 7, 13 that we read at the end of last week uh, that, that Jesus stated here that people make the Word of God of no effect through their tradition. So if they could do that, if they could strip the power out of God's Word, the life-changing power out of it by their tradition, then we certainly could do the same. We could certainly elevate this uh, our traditions above God's Word. Think about a proper order of these matters. I would say it, it looks like this. Number one is the Word, God's Word. Number two is the Holy Spirit. And number three is tradition. See, not all traditions are inherently bad. Many habitual spiritual practices can be beneficial. It, the problem is, is when they take precedence over the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And say, say, well, why do you put the Holy Spirit as second to the Word? Well, in, in, in reality, they're, they're equal. In reality, the Word and the Spirit agree. The Holy Spirit is never going to tell you something that disagrees with something He already said. Yes. Right? In reality, they're equal. But in our experience, we always have to judge spiritual things. Okay? It's easy for someone to say, the Holy Spirit said. God told me this, or He revealed this to me. And you might be right, and you might not be right. 
All right, I'm not just going to take your word for it. You shouldn't just take my word for it. We judge all spiritual experiences by what is written, for God will not contradict nor disagree with himself. Right? So that's why I say we put the word and then the spirit. Remember John wrote that we are to test the spirits. Yeah. See what's of God. Right? And then if you see what's of God, you can see what's not of God. And so this will keep us out of just that simple structure. Keep us out of elevating religion, tradition, and doing all these things and supplanting God's revealed word about himself and our, our lives and our future and eternity. We always keep God's word as the source of what should be expected. What should be anticipated? How would you describe a person's relationship with God? Well, you should have scriptures on it, meaning on what it's supposed to be, not what it is. Uh, let me reintroduce this, this again. I may have mentioned this briefly to you, but what is normal when it comes to Christianity? What is a normal Christian? What should their life uh, look like? Okay, and then are you normal? <laughs> You know, kind of like if sometimes, you know, someone may, uh, you know, observe something about themselves physically, about their body, and they may ask a doctor, say, Doc, is, is this normal? <laughs> is, am I supposed to feel this way? You know, is this supposed to function this way, look this way? Am I normal? Why do they want to ask that? Well, they don't, you know, people want to take comfort if they're kind of, amongst the crowds, the masses. You know, if the doctor says, yeah, 90% of people are that way, have that same thing, that's, you're right, you're, you're very normal. Then people go, oh, okay, whew, good. <laughs> right? But, if, they, but if, the, if the doctor says, you know, well, actually, <laughs> I've never seen that before. <laughs> I looked it up in my books, and you are one in a million. <laughs> it's like, oh, yikes, I don't want to be one in a million. We want to be like everybody else in some ways. But when it comes to being a Christian, when it comes to having a real relationship with God, we, we really shouldn't think that way. Because what if 80%, 90% of Christians think a certain way, act a certain way, their experience with God is on a certain level, and then we take comfort in being like them, but everyone has a watered-down experience? What if none of them look very much like Jesus? Then, we're, then our ex expectations have come way down from what is offered to us by God. We've lowered our expectation to match everybody else. Okay? And if the average Christian is powerless and ineffective and sad and bored, and we think, yeah, that's just like me. Oh, good, I'm normal. <laughs> well, you might be normal by that measure, but, but not what God would call normal. Everybody okay? Yeah. All right. If most people only pray when there's a problem, if they only go to church when it's convenient, if they only serve when someone asks them to do so, they might not be a real Christian. <laughs> Hallelujah. I think our relationship with the Father ought to be uh, ought to be like Jesus. It ought to be like the Christ in the Christian. Yeah. Right? He should be our normal standard setter. 
what ought it to be? I shouldn't first think about someone I know. Now, I can learn some from other people. Hopefully some people can learn from me and my relationship with God. I'm telling you the perfect picture though was Jesus. Okay, And if I'm describing, defining what it means to be a Christian or to walk with God, there ought to be many elements that are seen in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in my life. If not, who am I following? Where am I getting my example? Where am I, who's creating the definitions of normal here? Everybody with me? It's kind of like uh, uh, Microsoft Word. Does anybody use Microsoft Word? All right. And you know, if you, if you don't know, uh, uh, you're using pens and stuff, pencils. Uh, uh, there, when you open a new document, it is based on a, what, what they call normal template. And the normal template defines what fonts, you know, the page borders, the size of the font, all that kind of stuff, and probably more. That's normal. Ever you open new, it's going to open a normal. Okay. I figured out quite some time ago that I didn't like Microsoft's normal. I thought, I am not using Times New Roman. I can improve on normal. They don't stand, they don't, you don't decide normal for me. (laughs) And so I created my own normal in that software with better fonts, not 12, 11 is superior. That's Right, and uh, so every time I open a new document, it opens a different normal than than yours. <laughs> I can do that, and you can do that. Not only with your software, you can do that with God. You can rearrange the parameters of what normal is for your walk with God, and even if it's been stuck on Times New Roman for generations. <laughs> You can alter that and say, my new normal is going to be this. And it'll take you a little bit to adjust to it. It'll feel like, whoa, whoa, this is out of my habit here, out of my wheelhouse. i got to adjust to this. And it's way better. Yeah. yeah. But we're not just grabbing ideas out of the air. We want to look to Jesus. And uh, his relationship with the Father uh, should be followed by all who claim his name. So we're talking about walking with God. Who did that the best? Jesus did. He walked with the Father. If I want to know what life is supposed to look like, I should look at Jesus and say, how'd he do it? I can learn from the apostles and others as well, but Jesus is the best example. Okay, how did he do this? And I just started thinking, what stands out to me? And I started writing things down. Maybe you'll do this on your own. Write down what you already know. And if you don't, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look for things. And make note of them. I was thinking, it's interesting how Jesus got away to pray after great victories. He would have great meetings and then go away and pray. I thought, hmm, why did he do that? Well, even if I don't know why, he did it. I ought to think that way too. I would see that Jesus would pray before making big decisions. Like choosing the twelve. He got away all night to pray. Do we do that? Okay, this is what a real Christian looks like. This is how they treat this relationship. They get away. Uh, Jesus frequently spoke of his father's will. He spoke about what, what his father wanted. 
And I'm saying, do we talk that way? I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying, do I talk that way? Do I think that way? Or I live with the consciousness of what my Father wants me to do. All right? Jesus would give credit repeatedly to the Father for everything He said. Not, not for what Jesus said and did. Something great would happen. He would uh, you know, speak great wisdom that would confound people. He said, my Father gave me that. Miracles would happen. He'd say, the Father did it through me. Right? He always gave him credit. That's how he functioned. That's how he thought. Um, Jesus was not a pushover. You know, he, he wasn't confused between meek and weak. Right? He was very humble. And yet, he wouldn't be pushed around. He knew who he was. He knew what he could do. He was not pushy either. He didn't go around demanding people do what he wanted them to do. Jesus walked in great power and authority. Jesus was normal. Come on, say it out loud. Jesus was normal. Yeah. So if I want to get my definition of normal or abnormal or strange or weird, I need to see how much it aligns with Jesus and His walk and relationship with the Father. Because I might be the weird one. Thinking everybody else is weird. I, maybe I'm the weird one. All right. Uh, Jesus is the standard. He walked in power. He walked in great authority. Amen. You know, uh, in, in Paul's ministry, in the apostle Paul, uh, one of the things that happened with him is that uh, at one point people were taking these cloths that were on his body and they were taking them and, and, and bringing them to sick people, demon-possessed people, and they would put that cloth on them and they would get healed. And you know how that, that principle, it's the same principle when people would go up and touch the hem of Jesus' garment. In, in, in other words, apparently cloth can absorb the power of God and then it can be carried to someone else and then released. And so miracles would happen that way. But it's interesting to me the words used in Acts chapter 19 that describes that event. Okay, It's in verse 11 and it, it reads, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. What kind of miracles did he work? Unusual. How many know there's no unusual miracles unless there are usual miracles? Yeah. So this is a person who also walked with God in a similar manner to the way Jesus did. And one of the things that we can see would be consistent is that you would have miracles in your life. Right? In other words, you may not always have unusual. They may be sporadic, but you're always going to have usual ones. Otherwise, they wouldn't be called usual. I'm just talking about everyday garden variety, supernatural displays of God's power. Just regular miracles. You know, like we sleep and we eat and healings happen and provision comes. Normal miracles. And then on occasion, you know, something out of the box, something different than usual. We're defining normal here, you guys. We're endeavoring to say, are the, is the way we're doing it, is the way we've always seen it done, is that really the way it's supposed to be? Does it align with what Jesus said? And so we should have a demonstration of God's power. Now, if I define or describe a, a relationship with God, 
I could definitely conclude that it is smart to have this. It is, it is a good decision to be saved. It is a good decision to have a relationship with God. It is, it is smart, but I don't think that is the first reason or the most important reason why we should walk with Him. And here, here, here's why. Even though for all of us who are saved, if you are, you probably did not get saved because you loved God. You probably got saved because you hated hell. Right? Probably part of your initial, if not the full-on initial decision was, I see I'm a mess. He's my source of help. He's my salvation. I'm going to take him up on this deal. This, I, 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 don't want to pay, I don't like pain, right? And so that's okay. I don't think there's anything wrong. That's smart. But, but what is supposed to happen after one receives salvation, they become aware that this is relational. He is a person. And what happens in our hearts is our love for him grows and grows. Yeah? Think about it this way. If we liken that to natural relationships and marriage and family, I may conclude that my life is going to be better. My physical life on earth is going to be better if I get married and I have children and, you know, and then grandchildren and so forth, get a home. And I calculate all the things that are a part of a really healthy, sustaining, happy life, and I say, that's what I want to do. So I find a good candidate, (laughs) and I say, Amy, I have done the math. You and I are both going to be better off in our lives if we get married and then have children. We'll (laughs) We'll be happier. And so you agree to that? Could you sign right here? <laughs> How many know that approach is kind of missing something? Even though it might be true. It, it, might, it might be based on good, solid research and evidence. Uh, but that doesn't carry what marriage was supposed to carry, right? There's no feeling in that. There's no, you know... I've gotten to know you, I like you, I love you, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. How many know that's different than that first equation? (laughs) Okay. I don't want to do that with a person. In other words, take all the feeling out of it. I don't want to do that with my relationship with God. Otherwise, I may very well just be very attached to a religion. religion. And it may make some sense. It may have some good calculations to doing it. It may improve my life. But I'm talking about a Savior who is a person. Our Creator has revealed Himself as Father, right? He is God, but He is a person. And this is how we are supposed to approach Him. One of the things I find myself doing from time to time is imagining and wondering and thinking about things to come. 
things to come on earth, things to come in my life, the end of the age. I think about heaven. I think about, you, you know, the end of the age in that regard. Uh, and I just, in one sense, I put myself there. I imagine it, what it's going to be like. And, uh, and one day, just a few weeks ago, I found myself imagining the great white throne judgment seat. Okay, Revelation chapter 20 speaks about that. If you're unfamiliar, there's a judgment seat of Christ. That's for Christians, and that's all about reward or loss of reward. Then there's the great white throne, which is the judgment for unbelievers, those who have rejected God. And that's where I was. Not, not at my judgment seat with Christ, but at the great white throne. And I just imagined myself uh, being there to, to kind of picture what it would be like for those people. So I put myself in, in their shoes. And the thing that was most troubling, most concerning for me at that, at that point, as I put myself in someone's position, is that I was very concerned that I was never going to see God again. And, and I was imagining myself saying to him, I, am I, I'm never going to talk to you. I'm never going to see you. I'm never going to be with you ever again. And I was greatly concerned about that. And in the middle of it, the middle of it, the Lord uh, spoke to me inside. I don't mean an audible voice, but inside I heard, you are approaching this as someone who loves me. Those people don't. And I thought, that's when my mind went to various scriptures and, and, and things. And I want you to turn to this, if you would. Uh, I'm using up most of our time here, but 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. See, it's not that those people don't love pleasure over pain. It's they just don't want Jesus. I've even heard people say, well, if that's the way God is, then I don't want to be in heaven with Him. Man, you're saying that out of ignorance, though. You don't know what you're saying. But of course people want pleasure. They want blessing. They, they, they want what God can do, but they don't want Him. And that's the problem. That's the thing that differentiates what we're doing from just a religious system. Okay? How many know salvation is not defined just by heaven? And we, we, that's part of it. We'll say, hey, if you want to go to heaven, you know, believe on the Lord, receive, receive the Lord. That's true. But salvation is not just what we get when we die. Salvation is union with God. Okay? If someone is not willing to submit to God, they don't get what comes with that submission to God. What too many times people want is they want what comes with it without the end. I want to bypass him and get to what he can do. No, that's not what this is supposed to be. That's not the description of this uh, in relationship that we're talking about. Being saved, how many know, is, is knowing God. It is loving God. Unsaved people don't have love for God. Heaven is not heaven without God. All right? Again, every good thing that we want or need, or desire, proceeds from, from Him. It didn't come from the universe. Right? The universe is not a person. The universe doesn't have a will. Right? It might send you an asteroid. 
you know. I'm saying life and love and victory and health and prosperity and wisdom. All these things come from him. They come from a person. They come from the God who is the all in all. And he loves us. Our focus ought to be, it's okay to want healing and want blessing and I want all that stuff, but it's also important that I know it comes from Him. This is not just a mechanical thing. It's not just a machine that spits out a blessing. It's a heart and desire for Him. That's what He wants. And that's what we inherently know. But the reason we have to address this again, we have to get normal back to his normal. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It means you love God. Come on. It, it, it means you know him. It means you're in a relationship. Does it mean heaven? Yes, it's going to end up with heaven. Come on. But it means we know him. It, we, we walk with him. Here's the verse I wanted you to turn to. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. Okay, Paul is writing here, speaking about his own life. He's at the end of his life. He said, finally, there is laid up for me a, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, I want you to notice, take note of how he described the saved person. How he described the Christian, if you will. Okay? He didn't say, I get the crown, boom, and everyone else gets it. Everyone who? Everyone who's saved. Now, he could have used those words, and in my reading, I don't believe those words would be incorrect. I think he could have said it that way and not changed theology or salvation. Everyone who's saved gets the crown of righteousness, all right? But his choice of words are what intrigues me. He described the same, the saved person by saying, they are those who love his appearing. And that's what I want to stir up. Come on, fire up on the inside of us. What does it mean to be a believer? I'm going to church on Sunday. Ah, blah. What does it mean? What, what, what is this all about? Man, I love God. I love Him. I love that He came for me. He died for me. All that's, He's coming again. I'm going to see Him. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in heaven. Talk to me all day long about heaven. But I, I believe it's Jesus who makes heaven heaven. Without the person, heaven is not heaven. I, I totally get this when someone, you know, passes away. That's a believer and we love them and people will often say, oh, they get to be with and maybe their spouse who already passed away or their, you know, other family or friends. They get to see them again. Oh, it's going to be a great reunion. I think that's true. But I also believe that their primary desire when stepping through the veil will not be to see that person. That'll be secondary. Their desire will be, where's the Savior? Come on, I want to see Jesus. And then I want to go to the throne. 
I don't mean to, that doesn't take anything away from our personal interaction. We will have that and have it forever and love it. But it's not first. Oh, they get to be with so-and-so. No, they get to be with Jesus. That will be the desire of their heart. It'll be the fulfilling, fulfillment of their heart. You know, that's the only way to make this, this, this walk with God work. We're talking about real Christianity. The only way to make that work is God occupies that space in our hearts and no one else does. I don't want to be married to someone who loves me more than God. Because that messes it up. My, our marriage cannot be at its highest and best if that, if I'm the most important person in it. Or she is. Someone said, we got to keep our families first. No, we don't. We have to keep them second. We must keep the Lord first. And then life flows from that relationship. And love and blessing and prosperity. Every good thing from heaven flows through our union with the giver of life. With the one who gave us his all. And if we ever find ourselves making that second or subjugating that reality of that true, real, genuine relationship with a system, with a structure, with a, uh, with a tradition, then we've missed the point. And we're no longer speaking two languages. <laughs> Amen. Joel described that last day as a great and terrible day. In Joel, Joel 2.31, a great and terrible day. I pray that day's a great day for you. It's going to be for me. For some, it's going to be yikes. Yeah. But our love for God, I'm saying that's what the Lord's description is. It ought to be our description. But it is something we should keep an eye on to keep it priority. Lest we become too mechanical too for, formatted, too religious. Uh, it, in the same passage that we just read about loving his appearing, in verse 10, Paul says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. So Demas was walking with God, and he got off track. How did he do that? The things of this world became his affection. He set his heart on natural things. What, is he, what do you mean? His love for God got set aside and he pursued the things of this world. Paul said, and he got off. He, he forsook me. And then was, he got out of God's will for his life. He, 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 he sacrificed something amazing and eternal for something temporary. Amen. Amen. I, I've heard at times people say things like, you know, why do you, why do you guys lift your hands and sing and worship God. And, uh, and I can answer that a bunch of ways. But can I tell you what's on my heart today to say why we do that? Because we want to. <laughs> if you don't want to, don't. Because you're just faking it. It doesn't mean anything. I want to. Say, so why do you want to? I, I, again, I could, I could go into a whole other message, but... I can tell you this, when I drew near to God at a certain time in my life, this was after I was saved, but I drew near to God more than ever before. First thing I, I recognized that happened, no one told me to do this, but my hands went up 
And I started craving to say, I praise you. Oh, Lord, you're good to me. Things like that. It just came out of me. I wanted, And I, I would look forward to doing it. Where previously I would go to church. But, you know, I'm just going to church. Are you a Christian? Of course, yeah. I love God. You know, I pray some. And, uh, but then when I drew near to Him, something on the inside of me, it was a love for God. I thought, this is totally not religious what I'm doing here. This is not coerced or forced or manipulated in any way. I just want to be close to you, Lord. I want to tell you how good you are. Yeah. And I tell you, your desire for Him means a lot to Him. If you want Him and you're doing it because you want to, you're putting a smile on His face too. Amen. Instead of, I've calculated that if I do this, God, this would be a smart move. All right, good. Got the math down. Now push the calculator aside and just talk to him. And walk with him because that's what he wanted from the beginning. Praise God. Can we take a moment? Just take a moment right now. And let's all focus. All right, we'll just do this pretty brief. But can you go in there fast? Focus as best you can on him, your connection with him, your union with him. His love for you. Hallelujah. Lord, we draw near to you now. Lord, we're pulling up close. Lord, you're our very life. You're the source of our, of our, our, our livelihood. You're the source of our peace and our joy. And we're connected. We've been made one together. Lord, I worship you. I want to. Lord, I praise you. I want to. Lord, I look forward to your appearing. I can't wait to see you. Lord, I, 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 I love to be with you. I long to walk with you, talk with you. You're my very favorite person in all the world. I honor and bless you, Lord. I draw myself near, close to your heart, O oh God. Thank you, Father, for all you've done. Thank you, Lord, for all you've given us. We draw near to you today. Lord, we are so, you're so good, so merciful and so kind, so gracious to us every day. Lord, every time, every time we call upon you, there you are again and again. Lord, we love you. We serve you. We worship you. We adore you. You're a good, good father.